0: Welcome to the Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com/slash The Next Track, and thanks.
1: Continuing our exploration of Bob Dylan at 80, we're very happy to welcome Emma Swift. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Emma is from Australia. She's a country singer. She's currently in London. You go around the globe in a number of time zones, which made scheduling a little bit confusing. You released an album last year called Blonde on the Tracks, which is a album of songs by Bob Dylan. And I just love that title, Blonde on the Tracks.
2: Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I should clarify. I don't think of myself as a country singer at all. I just happen to live in Nashville. I think it's okay. One those, it's one of those geographically confusing things. I mean, I, uh, genres can be a bit of a boundary thing for artists. Yeah, but I consider myself more of an indie and a folky than than anything else. Um,
1: okay, I retract my
2: statement. <laughs> no, I'm glad you like the record, though. I'm, I'm glad you like Blonde on the tracks. It's um It's a a record that I made with a lot of love and care, as you say, in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where Dylan has made so many great records before me and, um, and I had a lot of fun doing it.
1: Do people think you're Taylor Swift's sister?
2: No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Swift in Nashville, you could think.
2: Right. No more than they think I'm Jonathan Swift's, you know, great, 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 great granddaughter
1: But you could be, you see, that's what's interesting. You could be. So, the whole record of Dylan covers. And, and Doug and I were discussing before the show about, I wouldn't say everyone covers Dylan songs, but it's not uncommon to cover Dylan songs. And you get a lot of sort of, albums of Dylan covers that seem to be pasted together and don't seem to flow. But with yours, I, I just have this feeling that that the overarching approach to it is so much more homogenous than from many other artists. Oh,
2: um, thanks. So I'm glad that you, that you like it and that the song selection speaks to you and that it works as a record. Um, I am a massive Dylan fan. I think that for... For anybody who's interested in folk songwriting and and, the, and kind of classic rock, doing Dylan is like doing Shakespeare um, for actors. I think you you do want to try it on at least once because there's so much that you can learn from the process. Whether or not you succeed in it is another, <laughs> is another matter entirely. Um, but I love the challenge of doing the Dylan project um, and uh, yeah, it was born out of a great love and respect for his songs and, and trying to try them on for size. You know, uh, uh part of the one of the reasons I chose the song The Man in Me for this record was I really did want to wear Gillen's coat and hat and tie <laughs> and <laughs> uh, see if it worked. Uh and uh and I'm glad that I'm glad that you like it.
1: So being a Shakespeare buff that I am living next door to Stratford upon Avon, I have to ask the question which Dylan song is the Hamlet and which Dylan song is the Lear? I mean, which are the ones that are these monoliths that are really hard to approach?
2: I. Stardyed Lady of the Lowland is my favorite Dylan song. Um, and that's why I wanted to record it, because it's not, I didn't record it because I thought it was going to be a radio hit It for 11 minutes. And, um, but I guess in a way, that is the hamlet of the, of the Shakespeare songs. Um, that said, King Lear is my personal favourite Shakespeare play. <laughs> um,
1: so what Dylan song would be the King Lear? Oh, gosh. Desolation Row maybe? Maybe something
2: like Desolation Row exactly. I yeah. mean then you, you've got like the I mean Sad eyed Lady of the Lowlands too that's probably more like a Romeo and Juliet thing or a you know the the, the romance plays. I think the best Dylan songs all have that great tragic comic thing going on. There's always there's always a line that can be delivered with immense beauty and suffering and then one that's like can be thrown off
1: for a bit of a laugh <laughs> yeah yeah i i I think the longer songs, not just because of the length, but it seems like bob Dylan's longer songs he put more into them, visions of Johanna, for example, something like that is just epic and while, while you could say something like, I don't know, Blowing in the Wind is something that he wrote in 15 minutes, which may or may not be true, you get the feeling that Visage of Johanna is something that took a long time to get where it was, and, and those are probably harder to interpret as a singer because you're aware of all the weight that there is with a song like that.
2: I think so. for me, when I chose to do these songs, I really had to disconnect from the amount of gravitas that they have. I just had to kind of forget about, you know, for the period of recording I couldn't listen really to very much Bob Dylan because it would have become too overwhelming in the same way that I didn't listen to any Joan Baez or Marianne Faithful or Nina Simone covers of Dylan, not because I hadn't before and not because I haven't since doing the project, But had I been too immersed in the history of these songs and of what they've meant, um, I don't think I would ever have had the balls to put out the record.
1: (laughs) Yeah. When, When you think about it, though, if you're familiar with Dylan, you're familiar with his phrasing, with his diction, with his style. It must be hard to slough that off and make this music your own.
2: Um, I th- it can be really hard and some of the best singers don't slough it off. You know, like some of Joan Baez's best Dylan interpretations are the ones where she really leans into that magical phrasing that he has. Um, but, but I'm not very good at that. I'm, I'm, I, I guess, yeah, there's a, a kind of forgetting that has had to take place for me about the phrasing to make it work
1: it's not polite to ask a lady her age. So I asked Wikipedia and I noticed that you were born well after Dylan's main most fertile periods. When did you discover Dylan? How old were you?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't mind talking about my age because I think cultural context in terms of how I came to like Dylan is important.
1: Well, Um, how did you come to like Dylan then? Go ahead.
2: Yeah. So I was born in 1981. Um, So I guess the first record that existed in my within my earshot um, was Infidels, which came out in 83, and I still love that record. I'm really into Infidels, very into 80s Dylan. Um, but I, I guess I got into Dylan in my late teens in a more serious way. I kind of I started collecting records, and this is the 90s, so the late 1990s. Um, you've got to think Britney Spears is at the top of the charts, And I'm at home going, hmm, what is this Blood on the track album? (laughs) What do these songs mean? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, uh, So um, I I got into Dylan historically, you know. um, I I wasn't there at the time. um, And I've stayed a fan of Dylan sort of ever since. But there's just so much to catch up on.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that myself because I feel like I'm not caught up on Dylan either. I'm good up to about Blood on the Tracks and I start losing the strings. But anyway, are you, a, are you like a Dylanologist? Do you do the Dylan day-by-day day research and what was he thinking, what was he doing when he wrote that song, that sort of thing?
2: I think that um, I'm not, I don't consider myself a Dylanologist. I think there are a lot of people who um, I'm, I'm not great with facts. And I don't really care for facts that much. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's probably one of the things that appeals to me about Dylan is the way that he's played with his mythology over time and really invented himself and then reinvented himself and shapeshifted. And I, I don't, um, I guess I, I'm not really, I'm not in trying to get to the bottom of the mystery Who is this genius who does? um, But I do like reading about Dylan. I like reading about his lives, his relationships, his story. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me culturally is that because I didn't know what it meant for folk music to be pure, I don't really have a good understanding of what it meant when Dylan went electric. I don't. Um, everybody was playing electric guitar by the time mm-hmm. I was getting into music as a teenager. In fact, MTV.
1: They were playing synthesizers by then.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and MTV Unplugged did the whole thing of, okay, now we're going to unplug rock yeah. and roll again. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it. yeah, I, I guess it doesn't, I don't know what it means, um, but I will, I mean, I will say that, the early songs that really appealed to me in Dylan were those heartbreak songs, those songs like Sad Lady and Visions of Johanna and, and stuff like that. And I never really got the protest songs, um, not because I wasn't left-leaning politically, because I am, um, but they seemed so out of step with my time, whereas now I, um, I value the protest. Having been through the era that we've just lived through and lived in with Trump, I value the protest songs so much more now. Um, blowing in the Wind is incredibly meaningful to me now. It makes me cry. Um, times They Are A Change and also it, it makes it, oh, God, it, it just makes me profoundly sad, um, those songs in a way that I don't think I had the life experience to um, to understand when I first got them, they just seemed like, oh, that's from the hippie era. That's nice. Peace
1: and love, whatever. It's interesting because, so we've, you're the third person we've recorded to talk about Dylan's 80th birthday. And the first one was Jeff Slate, who we spoke to in particular about the most recent album, Rough and Rowdy Ways. And it's really quite stunning to see an artist who's got a recording career of nearly 60 years when most artists, they'll have a period of a few years when they, have a few good records. Think of the Rolling Stones, let's say 69 to 73. And then for the rest of their career, they're just like a tribute band. Yet Dylan keeps going. And you can look at each decade in his career and find different things. It's always seemed to me that Dylan is there's no one like him in the sense of having that career, particularly reinventing himself with Rough and Rowdy Ways. And you chose to put one of those songs on your record, I Contain Multitudes, which is really interesting because most of them are much older. Why did you pick that particular song? Was this in some way an homage to Dylan's longevity, or is it just because it's a great song?
2: Uh, I fell in love with the song when I first heard it. I, it completely capsized me. Um, it was sort of in that very early phase of the pandemic and I hadn't been going anywhere or seeing anyone. And um, he'd already released Murder Most Foul, um, which is brilliant, utterly fantastic. And and as someone younger, the way that that song is a list of Um, all the music that has kind of made up his life and and a cultural kind of um, investigation of of JFK. And, I mean, that's a a fantastic history lesson. I love Bob Dylan as a professor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love being a student there. But I fell in love with I Contain Multitudes very much um, because I think it's a profoundly a beautiful song, a love letter to poetry and music and art. And um, so I felt really compelled to record it. Um, It it also felt a little bit like the icing on the cake on Blonde on the Tracks. As you say, um, I think the flaw in that record, retrospectively, if I was to go back and do it again, is that it really only addresses a period of Dylan's career between 65 and 75 and, and I don't think that that, um, that wasn't intentional. It was just where I happened to, those were the records I happened to have in my collection when I went to pick the songs. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it might have been a, a stronger record if I did put some more effort into going through the decades. But then the flip of that is, I really just chose songs that I personally connected with.
1: Yeah. You don't want to be forced to have one song from each decade, for example.
2: Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like a covers act. Yeah. yeah, It's very much, these are the songs that I feel a spiritual, emotional um, connection with and have a desire to express. Um, So I guess, I mean, it was really nice when I contain multitudes came along because it, it felt a bit like the missing piece on the record. Look, I, I had had the album sitting around, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then when Dylan released Multitudes, I thought, I'm going to record that song and then put out the album. <laughs> and so I did.
1: Did you record this during lockdown?
2: Not the album. Um, okay. I recorded Multitudes and Simple Twist of Fate from my house Okay. in, in lockdown, the, the rest of the record was made prior to the lockdown.
1: And how was that experience of recording those two songs? In uh, you know, you're, you're a performing artist, you're unable to perform, though you're on your way back to Australia, which what happened to COVID in Australia? They don't have any because they did the right thing in the beginning. You'll be able to go and people will be able to go to concerts. But oh, we've talked to a lot of people since the lockdown about how difficult it's been to record, to not be able to perform. What was it like to do those two songs?
2: I was fantastic. It's really nice to lose yourself in art and music and just the pure pleasure of love of the song and actually not let um, my my life and my connection to art be on hold just because I couldn't get in a recording studio. Um, I'd never recorded at home before. I'm really bad with technology. I'm not great with GarageBand or anything like that. But it was the song that propelled me. Uh, I just became obsessed with it. <laughs> so I, I had to. I had to do it. I felt like I didn't have a choice. Um,
0: will you record at home again?
2: I will. Um, I will. I. I really love being in studios, though, with people. Something to be said for bouncing ideas off one another and eye contact and all of those little bits of magic, um, but it was nice to be um, to experiment with this other side of recording too yeah.
1: so you recorded your vocals at home. What about the rest of the instrumentation on those two songs?
2: So the guitar was played by Robin Hitchcock also at home and um, and it's my cat in the background.
1: What's your cat's name?
2: Tubby. Um, uh, yes. Uh,
1: cats are welcome on this podcast. Oh we're both cat gosh. people.
2: He's got a lot to say about Bob Dylan, clearly. <laughs> um, no. Uh, yeah. So So. What, where were we? We were doing the vocals for, for At Home and, and – yeah I would record it home again, but i I like to get back in into real life
1: so what's it going to be like going back to Australia where I believe you have to quarantine for two weeks and then you'll actually be able to perform in front of human beings again
2: um very strange i imagine um yeah I think that um I mean I can't wait to do these songs live and with a band and that's where Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands really will take on its marathon-like quality because it's one thing to record that song in a studio and stop and start again and it's another thing entirely (laughs) to go, I'm going to perform this for 12 minutes in front of people and get in the song and get kind of possessed by the song and hope that, you know, the Dugs and the Kirks in the audience come along for the ride with me, like rather than scroll through their phone or wish they were somewhere else. So, <laughs> I mean, this is nice, but can't she just play like a Rolling Stone or something?
1: <laughs> yeah. Do, do you see a lot of people looking at their phones when you're performing? I, I mean, I just find that. You know, Dylan has a strict rule that you can't take pictures at his concert. So when people take out phones, you'll get the security guards glaring at them. I just find the idea of going to see a concert of anyone and not paying attention to be, I don't know, a heresy.
2: I don't know. I mean, I think that there's, uh, I mean, I've been very guilty of like, oh, gosh, I'm at this Brian Ferry show. I've got to take a picture of Brian Ferry on the stage or otherwise I wasn't here. <laughs> um, so I've I've done it too. I'm wondering if post-pandemic the live show is going to start to feel a bit more sacred and a bit more holy than it used to. Um, music's always been a very spiritual thing for me. Um, but I, th- I think I lost a bit of that, uh, in part because I lived in, uh, living in Nashville, there was so m- so many high-quality shows to go to every single night of the week. It became completely normal. Yeah. <laughs> in a way that now that we haven't been going to shows, that sense of occasion and majesty and something being quite special is going to come back. and And I think that... That is also what will happen for musicians in studios as well. That thing of, oh, gosh, we're all in a room together.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it'll be more precious. It'll be more of a precious time. People won't be thinking about when they can get up and go have the next blunt. You know what I mean? (laughs) Between takes, right.
1: Yeah. Although, you're going back to Australia where there hasn't been much of a change. I, did they stop concerts at all during the lockdown?
2: Oh, yes. They stopped concerts, and it's been quite strict in terms of actually getting into Australia.
1: Well, that I know. But the people in Australia, they're allowed to mingle and go to clubs and restaurants and everything.
2: In a limited capacity. It's okay. Well, and there's been no touring. Um, oh, okay.
1: So- well, no international touring because – Of the quarantine and, yeah.
2: Oh, and no local touring, though, too. Oh, okay. Part of the reason that COVID didn't spread rampantly in Australia is they put up some pretty tight restrictions. Okay. But I don't think that that gets reported as much internationally. No. (laughs) Only because it's not news compared to, you know, restrictions work, all right.
1: Yes, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
2: It's not as awful as, okay, and then this many people have died and this, you know, the vaccine.
1: Yeah. So have you seen Dylan live?
2: Yeah, I've seen Dylan a couple of times live. Um, Fantastic, each and every time for different reasons. Um,
1: Recently or a long time ago? No,
2: only within relatively recently. so the, I think the last time was 2015, or it could have been 2014.
1: Um, yeah, it, I mean- that, that was actually the first time I saw him. I grew up in New York City, and by the time I was – because was Dylan wasn't touring between, what, 66 and 75. And so when he did tour, I believe in 78, tickets sold out too quickly, and that was the born-again phase, and no one really wanted that. I moved to France in 1984, and he didn't perform – often in France. So it was only after I moved to the UK eight years ago that I had an opportunity. And I saw him once, I believe, in 2014 and once in 2016. Both times I paid for front row seats because, you know, haven't seen him at all these times. And it's fascinating to see what he does on stage, even at his age, the presence he has, the the mastery of his vocals that he has.
2: Oh, he's a wonderful live performer. I I love the the Dylan live experience, and uh, yeah, the last time I saw him was at Sydney Opera House, so an, an iconic venue. I wasn't in the front row, sadly. <laughs> I was in the fifth row. Uh,
1: That's not bad.
2: It was not bad, and it, it was yeah, it was just really, really special. Um, A special night, and I'd love to. I I was really hoping to go and see him on the run of shows that got cancelled last year. Um, There's always so much to learn from watching him play.
1: Yeah, Uh, let's just hope he continues touring because now at 80, you know, if you see him in recent years, you see him hobbling a bit on stage. He's not really that comfortable. He doesn't play much guitar, and I'm wondering if he's getting to that age where. You know, he's just not going to do it as much. I mean, as a touring musician, you know what it's like to do 100 shows a year at your age when you're young. But at Dylan's age, that must be incredibly difficult.
2: What's wild to me is that he does all the touring and then has time to do any other stuff. Right. Um, he's so prolific as a visual artist. and yeah, and, and that's really impressive to me as well. I mean, he obviously just loves doing the work. Um, I think that there is, uh, I mean, touring life and recording life, they're just so different, though. Um, yeah. So I, I can imagine, or well, I would hope at least, you know, I'm, I'm just projecting, I'm sure, that there's a part of him that really wants to go out and play some of these rough and rowdy ways songs yeah. live. I mean, particularly, I mean, I can tell multitudes I love, but obviously, but um, I've made up my mind to give myself to you. Is just a classic. I'd do anything to hear him sing that live. And yeah. Key West is probably, you know, my yeah. final on the record. Yeah. Um, I just, it'd be really nice to, to see that.
1: So what's next for you? You're, you're slightly defined as the woman who covered Bob Dylan on an album. So what's your next record going to be?
2: I, I can think of some others who are also defined that way. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, I know. Yeah, I I'm writing my own songs, so there's nothing quite like picking the world's greatest living songwriter and then writing <laughs> to add pressure to the <laughs> to to one's life. Um, but yeah, I'm just writing and recording, and maybe I'll do some more Dylan songs. Um, I mean, I uh, maybe I'll record some songs of other people. I think what I really loved about doing the Dylan project was getting so. Um, caught up in his universe um and there are other artists uh like Lou Reed for example whose universe I would also like to get caught up in and just see what I can learn from from that um, from that experience
1: so you've recorded Bob Dylan you're interested in Lou Reed but what about female singers are you not attracted to them in the same way
2: no, I love female singers and female songwriters. Um, uh, I think that, that it's much harder to bring a new element or a twist, though, to the back catalogue of Joni Mitchell. You know, uh, part of the fun of doing Dylan songs is that I put a feminine twist on them. You know, when, when I sing, um, you know, Queen Jane approximately from a female perspective or when I sing, when I sing, you know, the man in me, that's really different. Um, whereas if I were to do Coyote, I'm probably just going to be a girl singing Coyote, not as well as Joni Mitchell did. <laughs> um, so, you know, th- but definitely, I mean, Joni Mitchell, Judy Sills, Sandy Denny, um, they're all singers, songwriters that I truly love and admire. I just i have a lot more doubt about whether or not I could bring something yeah. new to the work. Um, uh, but I'd love to see, I'd love to see men do that. You know, uh-huh. that's a
1: good point. Yeah, uh, men don't uh, often cover women's songs, do they?
2: It's not, uh, it's not done as often. You know,
1: yeah.
2: I, I think Nick Cave doing all Joni Mitchell songs would be a really great record. Yeah. <laughs> um, I saw Elvis Costello do Joni Mitchell. He performed a case of you when I saw him
1: in Glasgow a few years ago. That's that okay.
2: really great. I think that there's fun to be had in that space.
1: Um, Yeah. I I like the idea of Lou Reed, though. Uh, Yeah. Your voice might be really good with Satellite of Love, maybe a little bit less for Street Hassle, and that's the sort of dark songs like that. But, But Lou's poppier songs are, yeah, that's fun.
2: Yeah, and um, and just playing a little bit with the gender and and the twists in that, and um, I mean, Coney Island Baby is probably my favorite. Blue really?
1: <laughs> yeah. Really, that's that's definitely not in the top ten of a lot of people. Hmm.
2: It, it, well, it, well, there you go. So that yeah, it's already getting like I wouldn't do uh, just like on on the Bob record. I I didn't do the songs that are beloved in that way that so many people have already done them. Like, why would yeah. I do like a Rolling Stone or knock an his yeah. door? What yeah. what would have been the point? What could I possibly add to that? So in the same way with Lou Reed, it's like, I love Perfect Day, but I'm not going to do Perfect Day.
0: <laughs> yeah, but <laughs>
1: that, that would be a very fitting song. I'm a big Lou Reed fan. I, I grew up in New York City, and so he was like wallpaper <laughs> um, in New York. <laughs> But but he's also got that New York tone in his lyrics, and his subject matter. It's pure Lower Manhattan. It really is.
2: I think, it, I, I mean, he's got that acerbic thing that Dylan has too that I think is really nice coming from a female vocal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, Emma Swift, thank you very much for joining us. The album is Blonde on the Tracks, link in the show notes, and all the best with your tour back in your home Australia. Thanks
2: so much. Yeah, thanks for... Um, having me and having this lovely chat about Mr. Dylan.
0: We sure like making this podcast. We really do. And what we don't like doing is the business of the podcast. And frankly, we just don't want to be part of a network where we have to have advertising. We don't want to actually have to chase down advertisers. We don't want to do anything like that. It just makes it a lot easier for us. But because of that, We do need a little extra cash, quite frankly, you know, keeps the thing going. So if you have a couple of bucks you'd like to donate to us every month and you can arrange it in your budget, we'd really appreciate it. You can become a Next Track patron by going to patreon.com slash the next track and future listeners will salute you. Kirk, you have a Next Track? (laughs)
1: My next track today has nothing to do with Bob Dylan, nothing to do with singing even. For some strange reason, I saw something that reminded me of some music by Olivier Messiaen, who was a French classical composer. He has this really wonderful collection of piano pieces called Catalogue d'Oiseaux, Catalogue of Birds. And what happened is... I'll read a description here. It's on Wikipedia. I believe this comes from liner notes on the first recording. Each piece is written in honor of a French province. It bears the title of the bird type of the chosen region. It's not alone. Its habitat neighbors surround it and also sing. Its landscape, the hours of day and night that change this landscape, are also present with their colors, their temperatures, the magic of their perfumes. And so the songs are named like the Alpine Chuff, the Eurasian Gold Oriole, the Blue Rock Thrush. I said songs, they're pieces of music. The Tawny Owl, the Woodlark, the Greater short toed Lark be a great name for a, a singer of a punk band, wouldn't it? It's somewhat atonal music, but you hear bird song in it. It's not just like he's transcribing the songs of these birds, but bird song makes up a lot of the music. I'm going to link in the show notes to a recording by Pierre Laurent Aimard, who is a French pianist who studied with Messiaen's wife Yvonne Loriot, who was the first one to record this back in the 1970s. It's a fairly recent recording. It's really beautiful. If you like this kind of music, if you like that sort of atonal, polyrhythmic, weird piano music, it might not be for you, but there's something really special in this. So it's Olivier Messiaen, Catalogue d'Oiseau.
0: Doug. Emma had brought up Joni Mitchell, and I began thinking, gee, now if I were going to record some Joni Mitchell songs, which ones would they be? And then I remembered, I haven't listened to any Joni Mitchell in probably decades. Uh, there was a time when I was in college, there always is, when uh, I had a, a lady friend who was very big into Joni Mitchell, and that's when I started listening to her. And I, I'm particularly interested in, in the late 70s stuff that she did when she started getting into jazz. So the record I'm going to pick to listen to is one that I, I remember liking a lot, and I probably still do. It's Hajira, which came out in 1976. It, uh, I think it's the first album she did with bass player Jaco Pastorius. And, of course, he has a very distinctive bass-playing sound, which defines the record, which is a, a a bit of a change from her folk rock stuff that she was doing, which is quite good. She's a great songwriter. But then when she started getting into the jazz stuff, I really became attracted to it. I guess uh, I I also like the musicians she played with. I just mentioned Jacko, but there are there are other people, and some of her live stuff, too, Would has a great band behind it. The Hajira album has the song Coyote in it that Emma mentioned, and most of the songs were written either while she was with Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review for a short time in 75, and also during a cross-country drive that she had been making. And that makes sense, because Hezira means a journey, and there are songs about journeys on this record. But anyway, uh, as I said, I haven't listened to any Joni in a long time, so I'm going to do it, and this is the record I'm going to do it with. Joni Mitchell, Hajira is my next track. This was episode number 210 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comment section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Next Track Cast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.